generation, there's a cinematic event that changes everything. This is unprecedented. A phenomenon that challenges the social norm. I've never seen anything like this. A spectacle that brings people together while taking the world by storm. If you are told to evacuate, make sure that you seek shelter. They say lightning never strikes twice. Ah, f it. Who are we kidding? Let's go kill some sharks! Movies. There's no more room in hell. TV. Four games. It takes a very steady hand. Conventions. Star Trek action figures also sold separately. Comics. My spidey sense is tingling. Collectibles. Sold $325. Books. I'm a best-selling author. RPGs. Where the Cheetos? Video games. Grab and fields. <laughs> Music. <laughs> Anime. I'm the hero. This is the G2V Podcast. Well, welcome everybody to a brand new episode of the G2V podcast. And as always, I'm Arnold T. Blumberg talking from Baltimore, Maryland. And my co-host is Scott Woodard coming to you from Portland, Oregon. And we have quite a special episode in store because as we all know, there's been quite a pop culture storm brewing for the last year or so, particularly thanks to the social media explosion that happened when Sharknado hit sci-fi. Sharknado? The movie became an instant cult classic last week, <laughs> exploding on Twitter the moment airborne sharks began raining down on L.A. Let's not for love. <laughs> ABC's Chris Connolly takes us behind the scenes with the creators of this phenomenon. Sharks! I never saw that coming. Who did? Was there something in the wind? Sharks in the street. 80 hours later, the question. Does Sharknado still have teeth? I think it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of, and I'm glad I did it. Sci-Fi re-airs it Thursday, and those from the Carnivore in the Funnel Cloud epic are jaws beside themselves. We're going to need a bigger chopper. It clearly was supposed to be ridiculous. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go win an Oscar for Sharknado. I'm just happy that everybody is laughing with us. I love you, America. And we're talking today with the man behind the storm, Anthony C. Ferrante. And Anthony, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Oh, you're very welcome. Now, we've got a lot of things to talk about, but first off, we should lay a little groundwork. You and I have known each other for a little while now. Uh, it goes back to, um, what was the very first thing? Was it Eon Magazine, first thing we worked together on? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I think it probably, I think you were there pretty close to the beginning. It was 90, 98 or 99. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's about right. Yeah. And I was already telling Scott off mic that I knew your name and you before I met you because I knew you from so much work that you had done writing for Fangoria and would always see your name pop up on various articles. And then I got a chance to actually write and work with you. And over the years, we've worked on a lot of stuff, worked on Cinescape, worked on a lot of other magazines. But of course, we also wanted to establish a little bit about where you got started in working in film as well. What was some of the first stuff that you did working in the movie business? Well, I mean, you know, the whole thing of wanting to make movies started at a, at a, at a very young age. And again, it's, you know, some people, you know, kind of find what they want to do. 
I kind of knew when I when I was eleven, I wanted to make movies because I love movies so much. But also came from a small town and had no idea what that meant. I mean, there was there wasn't like you know, wasn't like living in Hollywood. I was living in a small town in Northern California, so you know, there it was like I had a camera in the backyard that I can I could pull out of the shed and start shooting. I, I just didn't know what that meant. I just knew I wanted to do it, and so the only thing that I could I, I understood was the idea of, well, I could write about movies, you know, like there's, you know, the, the review for programs like Ebert and Siskel and stuff. So mm-hmm. in my elementary class, I started writing movie reviews because I, I, that was the only thing I knew what I could do. And, and I continued doing that through, uh, uh, junior high and then in high school. And then, uh, ended up working for the local papers, a critic and started getting interviews with celebrities um, and in the interim, uh, during during high school, the community college actually had a film class, and mm. so I was able to convince the powers that be to let me take that film class at at the community college, even though I was still in high school. And that pretty much was it. Once I got a hold of a camera and editing and stuff, I was like, "Oh, let's go out and make a movie," you know. <laughs> so so we'd go out and you know make movies, and you know, like I remember one summer when my good friend Steve Buck, we would. Uh, we go. Let's go make a. Let's go make a karate movie, and we'll 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 do a martial arts movie where we just go and shoot all of this <laughs> random stuff. You'll be, the, you'll, be, you'll be the lead. You you you. It doesn't matter what you say because then at the end we'll dub it over and we'll make a story out of it. And and I think it was called uh, Dumb Chucks instead of Numb Chucks, Dumb Chucks. I mean, I, I don't I I don't know what was going on through our heads, but but the thing that was interesting is that it taught me. It actually taught me how to bake a story out of nothing because we 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 had this sort of guy you know going through these various things and these ridiculous things happening, but we had to edit together into something that made sense. Mm-hmm. And then we had to sit down and uh, another friend of mine, uh, Bill Martell, who is now a, a very very busy screenwriter. We we would just come up with like what the story was, and he did all the voices to it, and it was just. <laughs> It, it was it it was it was bizarre, but there was there was a method to the madness. So th- that we started doing that, I continued to do the journalism, and went to uh, San Francisco State University, got a degree in film, and then moved to Los Angeles. And then when I uh, got to uh, Los Angeles, I, I again, I was how do you break into the industry when you really don't know a lot of people? So uh, basically, uh, I started as PA on a film called Necronomicon. Mm-hmm. And then because I had a lot of makeup effects in some of the movies that uh, that I had done as shorts, I showed it to the line producer, and he said, hey, do you want to help manage the makeup effects on top of being a PA? Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. And so I ended up doing that and working like 20-hour days, and I brought a couple of my friends in to help with some makeup effects and work with people that I'd interviewed through Fangoria, like Todd Masters and Chris Biggs. And so I started doing the special makeup effects. I, I worked on many Brian Usna movies, and I, then I started also doing the second unit directing for the movies where I would handle all the makeup effects. So it started mm-hmm. off just doing inserts. And I think by the time I ended up doing Wishmaster 2 for Jack Shoulder, I was doing entire sequences um, that, were, that were related. But we, you know, I would build the whole effect sequence, and then I would shoot all the pieces to make it work. I think you and I probably have a lot of people in common because I did uh, a long stint in the special effects industry as well. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Necronomicon. I know this is a bit of a, of a segue, but uh, way, way back when you were working on Necronomicon, I was working on Cabin Boy with Alterion. And I remember uh, we were shooting up at Santa, Santa Clarita Studios yep. and, and Tom Savini and a, a sort of entourage walked in and, and we were sort of all doing a little quick meet and greet because I think uh, you guys might have been shooting up there as well. 
And were you in that group by any chance? <laughs> I don't think I was in that group, no. Okay. Because actually, I came on the tail end of Necronomicon. They were doing like about okay. a week of pickups. And um, Tom, Tom Renoni handled the the main portion of that. But um, I came in, again, I was like, as a, I, I just it just moved down to Los Angeles. I, was actually, I actually was covering Fangoria for uh, Necronomicon for Fangoria. And I, and I was good friends with the writer who was from Northern California, Brent Friedman. And, and mm-hmm. he, when I moved down, I said, "Hey, you know, they're they're going to be doing pickups. Do you want to be a PA?" And it's like, "Yeah," and, th- and that's <laughs> and that's kind of how it all all uh, happened. So I mean, for that week, you know, we I was I was a slave, and then I was also <laughs> m- managing all the makeup effects. And I also brought uh, a couple friends of mine, uh, Sam Greenman and Todd Re- Todd Rexon, to uh, to actually do additional makeup effects. So we kind of became a de facto effects company as well. It was. It was okay. a weird, crazy, crazy time. Now, I know from knowing you for a while that John Carpenter is, is a favorite filmmaker of yours. Oh, yeah. And, and you'd certainly look back at Halloween, and we share that as you know, certainly a classic movie and a classic franchise. But was horror, it seems like you gravitated to that very quickly. Was that not just where the opportunities were, but also what you're interested in delving into, or that just sort of evolve as you were working? No, no. I mean, I always loved horror films. You know what? You know what it was. It was the. I I keep kind of saying this is like it's sort of a pay it forward thing. You know, I wanted to make movies where I could pay it forward and and influence other people. So you know, I movies meant a lot to me. That was kind of my uh, the thing I did on Saturdays. I went to the movie theater and watched three movies in a row. And you know, I I just I just loved film. And so to you know, wanting to be scared and what you know, Halloween was one of the scariest movies. I saw that and. They did one of the revivals of it, and I saw it in the theater by myself. My mom allowed me to go see it by myself in the theater. That's said, awesome. oh, said okay, and it was I think it was a double feature of that and Motel Hell, and Halloween scared the crap out of me. But it was I wanted you know I wanted to kind of give that back in doing doing horror movies. But the other thing too that's interesting is that as much as I, I loved horror, it, like side by side, you know, I would be doing these horror movies, but I would also be doing these kind of comedy things too. Mm-hmm. So I it, I was kind of doing both even though horror was the thing that was my the thing i loved i also liked messing around in the comedy world and that that's i I look back now and when you see kind of like what happened with sharknado it's it's kind of a blending of both of those worlds i mean there's always been humor in my horror films Mm -hmm. but it's been very dry but sharknado is like the first time that i was able to really kind of go over over that line and and really try to do ridiculous things but also just with the characters really create some funny moments and stuff oh sure um so 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 that's kind of so, so horror has always been the thing is like you know it's it, but it, but ultimately honestly what it comes down to is just i want to tell interesting stories and if if it is in the horror genre great if it's doing sort of a hybrid thing like sharknado sharknado great but you know i, I will always gravitate toward horror because actually the thing about horror that's cool is that you can do a lot more in a horror film than you can do in in some cases in dramas and and comedies because you can hide what you're talking about. Oh sure, you know sure. you know metaphors and themes and you can sneak things in, and no one's ever going to question it because most most audiences and most producers are going, oh yeah, it's a movie about ghosts in the hospital. Oh, they're not saying <laughs> anything important. It's like yeah, most of the movies about my feeling about hospitals and cancer and and death. I mean, there's all these things that are going underneath the surface in that film, uh, but it's it's buried and hidden, and some people pick it up, and then the rest of the people just see it for what it is. Now, just uh, so people know, you're talking about Boo. Yeah, I'm talking about Boo. Yeah, yeah. and then. 
And then, and and then here's the other thing too. And this this was actually something that just came out through the casting um, on on Sharknado two. Okay, we have a movie set in New York about sharks in a tornado destroying New York. And in the middle of the movie, we we uh, we have a character. We have Ian Ian Ziering who plays Finn, our hero. He comes back in the second movie. Um, there was a character named Sky that was supposed to be. Um, like a, a groupie or something in the original script. And then, uh, you know, it was like a 25 year old groupie or something like that. And then they cast Vivica, Vivica Fox to play, to play <laughs> that role. And then, uh, we were going, Oh, this can go back to the original idea. We wanted to give Finn a high school sweetheart and that sky role kind of turned into a groupie. And, and so, um, I convinced, uh, the producers in sci-fi say, I want to still, I want, you know, since we, this is like a week before we were about to shoot, we had to rewrite that entire role. So mm. it's like, let's make it the high school sweetheart because then there's a dynamic because you have Finn and Tara, but then you have Finn and his high school sweetheart and it's sort of a dynamic of, you know, of him seeing the reflection of what could have been. But adding to that, you know, is the idea that there's there's this whole story about an interracial love story that happened yeah. 50 years or not 50, 40 years ago and when things were different. And there's dialogue and there's lines and, and it's it's not it's not hitting yourself over the head. It's just played like any normal characters, uh, like two characters talking about anything. But it's but it but you look at it and you go, wow, we actually were able to tell a really a really interesting and endearing story that was that was literally fabricated a week before we started shooting because we cast this great actress named Vivica Fox, and she goes toe to toe with Finn. And it's and her and I just created this really interesting thing. And there's subtle stuff because they're such great actors. We were able to we were able to say things in the middle of these moments that you know are surrounding with sharks. They're in this elevator <laughs> and they're talking about you know they have to go 65 floors. It gives us a chance for them to kind of go okay, let's let's hash this out. And it's just and it's really great. It's and so so that's what I'm saying. It's like I don't think you could do that in in a lot of movies. And again, mm -hmm. most people that do it in films want to, is, will hit you over the head with it. That's right. It, it, this is, this is just like two guys talking. I mean, it's just, it's, it's as if this, it feels real. And that's, that's what was really fun. And again, some people are not even going to think twice about it, but I think it's really cool and forward thinking that we were able to, to do that. And I, I give them credit for, for giving me that, 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 that ability to, to do something that wasn't planned. Well, the cool thing that's and and I want to step back a little bit first, though, and get back to yeah. where all this began. But that alone sounds like the kind of thing too, where people are drawn to this. It's like it's a big media event. It certainly became has become one because of the first film, and it's like, oh, Sharknado two is going to be fun. And instead, there's this whole other layer you're talking about that yeah. not only gives you satisfaction as a filmmaker, but hopefully now people will be looking and saying, oh, there's a little more to it than just you know, the effects and the excitement and adventure of that, but there's actually something meaningful going on if you pay attention. G2B. We're in trouble. Come on, move to the next car. Now, stepping back though, you were doing uh, movies. You you did you met you were talking a little bit about Boo, 
Yeah. Um, and I remember that very well. And there, if I remember correctly, too, Boo also has at least one really good sort of Halloween homage shot in that movie. Yeah, there's sort of a Carpenter esque kind of shot. Well, Boo was written. I I had written the movie. Um, I wanted to I wanted to make a really scary, scary film. And um, we were we were shooting a film called Progeny at this uh, hospital called Linda Vista Hospital in downtown L.A. It was a abandoned hospital. And, you know, doing the effects, we had a lot of spare time. So we just roamed the place. And it was supposedly a haunted hospital. And I, I was just kind of going, wow, the, the, ER pi- the ER pilot shot there. And uh, we were shooting it as a functional hospital, even though it was abandoned. And I kept walking around going, God, this place is pre-production design. It should be, we should be using it as an abandoned hospital. Mm-hmm. And, and we did a bunch of crazy things. Like um, we, we set up a a wheelchair in the basement with fishing line and we would bring crew members down there and go, the, the place is haunted. You got to come down here quickly. <laughs> and, and we bring people down and we'd have someone hiding behind the door and then we would yank the, the, the <laughs> wheelchair and people would just dart up the stairwell and freaked out. And we had the camera guy, like he was like, I'm coming down here with the camera. I'm going to capture the ghost. And then, and, and, and then and we would never, we never told him and he kept going, you guys were joking. It's like, no man, that really happened. <laughs> <laughs> that was a ghost down there, and and I got, and the fact that we were able to play pranks like that and freak people out, and there and there were some ex- weird things that happened to some of the crew that uh, that I lifted from from these experiences. Like there was a light that tr- that 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 turned on for one of the rooms. I mean, there was a lot of creepy stuff at this place. So I thought if I was ever going to get a chance to direct my first movie, I needed to write a single location movie, and I wanted to write something really scary, which turned out to be Boo and. Uh, mm-hmm. The irony is that it was my first movie, and we actually got to shot at the place I shot it for. I, I wrote it for, which never happens. I took the producers. I said they liked the script. I said, "Here, let me take it to the hospital." I wrote it for, and I took them there, and we went to lunch afterwards. They go, "Let's make this movie," and hmm. and so that was like that was really cool. But talking about the John Carper thing, I mean, the Boo, Boo is my homage to to scary supernatural horror films. I mean, there's a little mm-hmm. bit of Halloween. There's a little bit of the Changeling, the George C. Scott movie. Sure. Um, and, you know, the the opening of the movie um, was what, what I think what you're mainly talking about, which is, you yeah. know, I, there was a sequence I always I would wanted to, I always wanted to see in a Hallow- Halloween movie that was never right. in a Halloween movie. So I, I said, well, why, why can't it be in my own movie? Because it's set on Halloween. So, you know, so we did a little <laughs> uh, nice little homage. But the funny part is, is that everybody that sees that sequence goes, oh, it's an homage to Scream. <laughs> Oh no! No, no one ever says Halloween. They always say Scream, which is like okay, whatever. I'll I'll accept it. You'll take it. Well, of course, this led to other films and other work, and you've done uh, a number of movies with uh, with um, sci-fi originals and Asylum, and then of course this leads to Sharknado, and we want to talk about the first one a little bit about mainly about the fact that at this point when Sharknado came along. They'd been doing a whole series of films that focused on some sort of animal-related or, or crazy event taking place. But beyond almost anything else they ever did, Sharknado took off on a level that I'm sure no one could have possibly anticipated, including yourself. And became, a, particularly on Twitter and in social media, it became an event. And if I remember correctly, didn't the numbers actually rise as they showed repeats of Sharknado after the first airing. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. So yeah, it, it definitely did. So so here's here's kind of what happened with Sharknado. Like, you it, it ultimately, honestly, it's the law of averages. 
you know, they, they've done a lot of really cool movies. You know, they, they, they've, they've done a lot of different hybrid movies. They've done over 200 films. I think they're up getting close to 250. I mean, in every week, it's like an anthology series. It's something mm-hmm. new. You know, one week Sinbad, one week it's a sci-fi movie, one week it's a horror film. And that, that was always kind of cool. And I think people miss the, miss the, the, the opportunity to really embrace that it's, pro- was pro- it's probably the longest running, um, anthology series on television because it is it's an anthology and and everything changes every week and um what whatever happened with this it just it it was the is the one concept that clicked i mean sharktopus got a lot of attention because it was a crazy concept and they've had a lot of crazy movies they've had a lot of just normal really cool movies um but i think the sharknado just it, it 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 hit it hit a nerve at the right time it was it combined things that people were afraid of. It combined really crazy weather, and it combined <laughs> uh, sharks. And so you put those two together. It also was a concept that um, I think kids uh, would like. So, so here's here's what happened with Sharknado. Uh, no one expected it to do what it did. It was all grassroots. There wasn't a lot. There was there was the commercials that Sci-Fi normally did. Uh, there was a lot of interest because of the poster at AFM. There were people going, this is a crazy concept. Um, and then we put up the, the, the trailer, um, ahead of time that the asylum put together and people were going, this is like crazy. It looks like a big, it looks like a studio movie, but you know how trailers can be deceiving. So I think there was a lot of genre fans that are like, well, I want to see this movie fail. We got to watch it. It sounds, (laughs) sounds ridiculous. It looks great, but you know, they probably put everything they had into that trailer and that was it. And what one of the one of the things I wanted to try to do is see how much stuff I could cram into one of these movies because I knew what the model was and you just needed to have the you know the right ingredients where you had the producers and everybody on board to seeing how how can we maximize this and really just blow up the model and and show that you can do a lot of stuff for this. And so it started building up and we started as there, for some reasons uh, a couple of horror sites got uh, early screeners and they were writing reviews and they were actually glowing reviews which I was like okay that's cool but I did not expect that I mean I was I was fully committed that I was going to get crucified for this cuz I was the horror guy and I was doing this crazy little movie and I thought after seeing it kind of all together that maybe we would get the stoners and maybe we would get the uh <laughs> Uh, the horror crowd, because, you know, we had that bit at the ending. I knew the horror crowd would appreciate what we did at the ending, but I didn't expect mainstream America. And what happened was it just, you know, the movies at the theater last summer, while there was a lot of good ones, it was a very serious summer for blockbusters. You know, Man of Steel should have been joyous, and it's got some great stuff, but it was it was dark and depressing. and It's very dark, yeah. And, and you know, and I think, I think what it was is people wanted they they wanted a a fun summer movie and it and Sharknado was a fun what could could be a fun summer movie if we sat home and watched it and it doesn't cost us any money and, and everybody so, still had the social experience because they all got online it, and it was the and and what the Twitter thing did it I, and I've said this before is that it's like the probably the biggest communal movie going experience ever where you had people on Twitter you had the filmmakers everybody was sitting there. Uh, watching the movie and communicating at the same time, but in the privacy of their own homes. But it was this glow. It was this this nationwide kind of a thing. And the first airing, you know, we didn't we didn't do great in the ratings. But the thing that 
that people forget is that people watch this in groups. And, I, you know, we went to Comic-Con and we talked to a lot of people that watched it with their families or they got together and they, people got drunk and just watched the movie. It was, it was this big event. And then each airing, it kept building. You know, we thought <laughs> after a couple of days, okay, this will die down. And it, be, it blew up and people were still talking about it three weeks later in the final airing. We, we, we were like, we doubled what we did the first airing. I mean, it was, it was insane. And then the thing is, the kids love the movie. I never sure. thought kids would embrace <laughs> this movie. We have people's arms getting ripped off. We have shark attacks. <laughs> and yet kids just, like, they loved what we did. And I think that was, that was what was kind of cool. Well, and and then also having having known you for a, for a long time and seen all the stuff you worked on is also fascinating from that perspective. Sitting online, not only the night of and and seeing everything tweeting, but then the weeks and months to come, it became an instant part of the pop culture lexicon. There were political cartoons about each party that were using this as a metaphor. There was I'm a big Lego fan. There were people that built Lego versions of the Sharknado. And celebrities all across the web were just using it as a reference point. It became something that went beyond any individual movie and just became an instant touchstone at all levels of the media and all around. It was just amazing. I remember you that somebody gave you a cake. They had the yeah. Sharknado cake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, here's here's the, here's the other thing too. You got we talk about the kids and we talk about families. It's also it was a bipartisan movie. They the left and the right both embraced it for for their reasons. It also was a movie where the sports community adopted us, and we had not a this a lick of any kind of sports uh, relation to the film except for you know Finn being a surfer, which really wasn't prominent. But I mean the sports community just just ate us up. So we we definitely uh, we paid it forward in the in the new movie with uh, a big sequence at City Field uh, the, with the Mets, which was uh, which took a lot of uh, a lot of planning and a lot of begging to make that happen. Because <laughs> you know if you're going to yeah. go to New York, you you have to do baseball. I mean that's but it, but it was also partly because this the sports community loved us so much, and so you had all these different things. I mean we were we 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 hit every single quadrant, and we didn't do it intentionally. It just happened. And I think that is, uh, I think that's kind of the magic about, about the film. It just, it, it took on a life of its own. It wasn't, I, 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 it wasn't something that was bought or planned. It just happened. And how often does something like this happen? And then we had like a theatrical screening three weeks after the sci-fi airing where we sold out theaters in Los Angeles and, uh, and, and New York and, and other places. So the, the weird part about it is it's, it's also the, one of the first movies to kind of blur the lines. The movie was, I mean, more people are still talking about this than Lone Ranger. And, <laughs> and we're a year later and and so I, it, it it actually started happening. People are very confused because they forget that they think was it a movie in theaters or was it on TV or was it both? <laughs> no one knows what to make of this movie, and I think that's I think that's also the great thing about it. We're now in a time where where if you say, "Hey, did you did, did you see Sharknado?" Yeah, it was a great movie. They're not saying, "Oh, that was a TV movie or whatever." Right. They're going, "It it created its own identity," and and I in Twitter helped. And the fact that we had a crazy concept, and then going back to what we, I was talking about, people wanting to see the tr the uh, the trailer to see if we failed, they kept watching the movie and they didn't know what to make of it because we just kept going. We <laughs> we um, Robbie Rist, who's in the film, he's a good friend of mine. He said it's a movie that doesn't know it can't do that, and 
I think that's that was the magic. Instead of just saying, oh, here's a little bit of something at the beginning, here's a little bit something at 45 minutes, and here's sort of an ending because we don't have the budget. It's like there's there's action and set pieces going on nonstop. We, we have over 400 visual effects. The movie was created in less than six months. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the cool part about this movie. And that's why people still have a hard time reconciling the fact that they like the movie. You, you hear a lot of, oh, it's so bad, it's so good. It's, well, if it's really bad, you don't want to watch it again. <laughs> you, if it's bad, you turn it off. It's that the concept is ridiculous and people just, are, they, they couldn't believe we had the balls to make a movie about sharks and tornado and then subsequently accepting that that's the villain of our movie. It's not sharks, it's not a tornado, it's a sharknado. It's just like Freddy or Jason, the rules are what we make of it. We never say that the sharknado was created by a scientist or ever. it's just, it's a force of nature. So the sharks can live you know, on land, they can tear through, they can tear through cars. They can, they could do things that they shouldn't be able to do because it's a sharknado. Well, and it's funny, you know, the, some of the people that I've run into of who, uh, in any way criticized the film, just, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you just have to say, you know what, this is just a fun ride. Just, just don't worry about it. Just have a good time with it. And I think it's a perfect example of that kind of a movie. Well, at the end of the movie, the, this, this is the, this is the other thing too, is I think also they didn't know where we stood as filmmakers on it until we got to the end and then Ian took the chainsaw, went into the shark, chainsawed his way out, and pulled out the, the, the Cassie. I think up until that point, they were like, are, do they know they're making this movie? Are they, are they on drugs? Are they, are, they, are, are they trying to make a serious movie? Because everybody's treating the situations as serious, but it's all ridiculous. But the moment that that happened, whether people hated the movie or liked the movie, the moment we did that, they were with us because they understood at that point that we were in on the joke. That that this at that moment we were we're just trying to make a fun movie, and mm-hmm. why not why not be ridiculous? I mean, and why not do a movie where? And I've done a lot. Of, I've written a lot of these movies, and I've directed a few of them where you have this mythology that is so dense. A movie that doesn't need to have a mythology because mm-hmm. it takes away from the, the the magic of it just being there. We don't have military or scientists in the movie. It's this guy trying to save his family, and they do the most ridiculous things to try to save the day. <laughs> and and then we go into we go into Sharknado two with some remnants of that because in my head, if you, I, I always would joke, it's like he he they blew up tornadoes. The collateral damage is insane. Los Angeles. <laughs> Hates Finn and his family. They they may have saved the day, but they 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 they're probably being sued by Los Angeles right now. And that was <laughs> that was kind of the thing about New York is that you know that's where Finn comes from. That's his hometown. So the idea is that when when the crap hits the fan in Los Angeles, you know everybody splinters and it's like every man for themselves. But in New York, everybody comes together. And so that was the fun part about you know oh if we get to do another movie we get to tell the other side of it where everybody is gonna is 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 in it together they're not gonna scramble they're they're gonna fight and I think that was the fun idea in in in, in the in the idea that Finn Finn doesn't have really any support in the Los Angeles but he goes back home and he's got support you know that's actually a classic horror reference too because Denim and Son of Kong is being sued by everybody after King Kong. <laughs> So you've got this connection to Sharknado too now. He's he's experiencing the same thing. It's happening again. You really think there's gonna be one of those shark storms here? Yes! 
I'm not crazy. People have to know the truth before it happens again. Ah! Welcome to New York. It's like he knew who I was. This is the Big Apple. Something bites us, we bite back. I almost told you once, and I'm not going to do it again. Let the fireworks begin! Well, you had to go to New York for the sequel. That was obvious. There was very few other places I think you'd, you'd have to go. And we have Sharknado 2, the second one, yes. which is going to be debuting uh, July 30th. And I just saw, actually, that they're planning an entire week of uh, programming all around the debut of the second one. And you were also on social media quite a bit during the shooting of it. And from what I remember, there was a lot of severe weather and a lot of other things you were dealing with doing uh, this shoot that it does look like it, it things mushroomed quite a bit in working on this. Is that right? And working on the sequel? Well, well, I mean, one of the things is that the, from the beginning it was said that, okay, we have to make the movie set in the summer, but we're shooting it during the worst winter uh, New York has ever, <laughs> ever experienced. But, the, but, but, but sci-fi was very, very great. They basically said, okay, it's summer, but go with it. Make it part, <laughs> make it part of the story. It's freak weather, yeah. And and, and so um, so there's this whole thing with uh, City Field. Uh, the day we shot at City Field, it started off kind of cloudy in the morning. Then it snowed. Then then it was a little sunny. <laughs> then it kind of sprinkled. Then it started snowing again. And you and and you look at it, and there's this extreme weather, and you go, oh, they must have shot that in a week. And yeah, they just had all this weather. That was that, everything that happened at City Field happened to us, and no one's going to believe it. I mean, that's that's right. the cool part about it. So, um, so yeah, so so you know, we just ran with it, and and honestly, you know, getting a chance to shoot in New York was just like, I, I, you know, uh, again, part of part of being a, a filmmaker is getting a chance to to do different things, and you know. You know, you shoot in L.A. It's like, okay, I know, I know, Linda Vista Hospital. I know the pier. You know this. You know, we're shooting at that downtown under the Sixth Street Bridge. I mean, there's just the regular stuff. But to get a chance to go to New York and shoot at all these landmarks, it's like a kid with a whole bunch of tinker toys. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, hey, let's do this. And so it's like instead of you know being a jaded New Yorker shooting in New York, going, oh, here's Times Square again. It's like, oh my gosh, we're shooting in Times Square. (laughs) <laughs> we're getting to shoot on Liberty Island. You know, it was it was a blast. It was it was it was fun. Before we move on with that, though, I know that Scott didn't you have something to ask him about the the first Sharknado too about a location? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it, it just amused me having lived in L.A. for eighteen years. Of, of course, watching the film and being as familiar with L.A. as I am, uh, I couldn't help but laugh when we went from Van Nuys to downtown to uh, Pacoima. <laughs> all within about the same scene. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Did we, I don't know if we shot in Pacoima. Did we? Sh- well, I did notice at one point there was. I think you there was a. I, I could have sworn I saw Orbital Way um, on one of the street signs. And if I remember correctly, that's either Santa Clarita or Pacoima. Oh, we, we shot. We shot a lot of plates. Uh, okay. So we. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, in the original, the, the, actually, I'm glad. I'm glad I, I I fought on this. Is like in the original script, the finale of the movie. Uh, was Lancaster? They, okay. they had to go save their son in Lancaster, and uh, and we you know we do all this big stuff. We destroy the Santa Monica Pier. We do this. We do that. And I, and I kept going. Anybody that lives in Los Angeles was like, really, you're going to destroy Lancaster? Go ahead. <laughs> and then yes. anybody that doesn't live here goes, where's Lancaster? And so you know you have all this epic stuff, and but there's no momentum of racing to get there. So so I, I in post. I convinced 
the producers to let us change the the airport to Van to the Van Nuys Airport, um, which is actually where we shot it anyway. Because then I said, technically, we could have the Sharknado coming in through. Um, uh, Hollywood, and we could get some Hollywood destruction at the end. So at least you're you're building to a climax as opposed to building to a place that should just be destroyed anyway. No, that's the people. <laughs> yeah. I know people in Lancaster, but still, uh, <laughs> and and it also sucks the air out of it because they're going to have to travel 50 minutes anyway to go save their son. So it's like exactly. the, the Sharknado is never going to get out to Lancaster. It's going to die in the mountains. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, there's a, there was a lot of cheating. Well, see, that's the other thing too is that. Um, there was a lot of cheating. Uh, you know, we, you know, the whole ending of the movie is a hodgepodge of, oh, we're under the Sixth Street Bridge, over oh, in this parking lot, and Van Nuys, over oh, over here, and it there was no, there was no like, hey, let's make the finale on Hollywood Boulevard, or let's make the mm-hmm. finale here, and so when we got to New York, it was a very, very conscious decision to to say, okay, um, here are our locations. Here, here are the big set pieces. Here are the big icons. And now we're going to have a story where you go from point A to point B to point C to point D, and you have a finale at a place everybody is familiar with. So that way you don't have this thing that sort of feels foreign. There is a little bit of fudging in the movie, but um, you know, Thunder Eleven, who wrote the the screenplay for both movies, um, you know, he's from New York, so you know, Sci-Fi has their offices there. They were very, very adamant about the the, the geographical logic, and Thunder made sure that you know there was a there was a flow. Now, it's still by nature of making these movies and doing them in a short schedule, you know, there is a little bit of wiggle room as to where they are, but we, we did try to try to have a trajectory for this stuff and try to make sense out of it in the, in the second one, because that, that, that was important to us. But again, you have New York. So it's like, you don't need to go to a parking lot in New York. You, you just go down the street. It's like, Oh, you could do this. You could do that. And, and I, you know, I'm not going to say what the ending of the movie is, but I mean, it, it's sure. pretty, pretty obvious where, the finale needs to take place. So I got know. a pretty good guess. Yes. I yeah. Think we'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it. We'll leave it for everybody to see when it happens. I, besides playing, like you said, with the toys in New York, it also seems like, and some of these have been announced. So I know you could talk about at least a few things, some of the names involved and cameos and people involved. It seems like the sequel has benefited uh, from the success of the first film. And we have some people turning up in this and uh, doing cameos or various scenes. And what was that like, bringing some of these na- names into it? John Hurd was excellent in the first movie. He was a great character. But in this one, it seems to have also uh, just exploded outward with so many people participating. Well, no, I mean, look, look at who we had, um, our, our top five people. You, you had, I mean, our, our leads. You had Ian Ziering, who's never done anything like this. And we we struggled trying to find the perfect fin. I mean, there was a lot of odd potential choices. Yet the moment that they said Ian Ziering, it's one of those things where they said his name, he's doing it. I'm like, of course. I mean, yeah. it was there was like, why didn't we go to him from the beginning? That is like, he is the perfect choice. He hasn't done a, a genre film. He has a following from 90210. So he's he's been around. Um, he you you have an an impression of him but we had the chance it's just like bruce willis off of moonlighting we had a chance to make ian a a, a hero and we did it we made him an action hero and he's our john mcclain 
Well, Scott, and, weren't you saying how like you really you were saying off mic? He really puts his heart into it, and he's yeah. No, I mean, I was really really impressed by his performance. I mean, it really seems like that it, it was a, a role that he completely embraces and and runs with, and I, I think he does a really wonderful job. He's very natural about it. Well, I think I think the first day it was like he was he was like okay, what what are they doing here? You know, because <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I had lunch with them prior, and he was great, and we talked a lot about what we wanted to do. But you, you know, it was like the first day. It's like we're doing the beach thing, and it's like okay, they're doing this wave runner that how i think he was like how are they going to pull all this stuff off and when he saw the level of commitment from everybody on the crew and the cast and everything he was like you know it's like he was just so supercharged from that like that first day he was like okay like you know the first the first bit it's like okay what are they going to do can they do this and it's like they can do this <laughs> all right oh so the, so when we were doing the the when we we're doing the sixth street bridge we had a stunt guy's like no i'm i'm gonna rappel off that sixth street bridge it's like <laughs> you, you you are really you're gonna yes you, i go you trust us it's like i'm gonna do it because that looks so cool and that was from you know from day one he was gung-ho and wanting to do uh anything and everything to make it work and you know, look, you also gotta you gotta look at this from a perspective of 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 any actor that I don't know anybody other than Ian that would have done what he did at the end of the movie, which was he let us douse him on the coldest day of Los Angeles last right. year with gallons and gallons of blood. We <laughs> we asked him to chainsaw his way out of a shark and then pull a woman out of the shark. <laughs> the the self conscious level for most actors would be. I'm not doing this. It's going to be ridiculous. Don't don't even ask me to do it. And he let us do it. He did a bunch of takes and he committed fully to that. He committed fully to the role. He even came back and and gave us a couple bone like a, a day where we were able to do the green screenshot we never got where he goes into the chainsaw with the chainsaw at the shark. We never had time. And he came in on his own time and said, "Okay, I'll do this for you because I know you need that shot." Mm-hmm. He just came in and did it. That that that's that's like that's who you want for your your lead, and after the first movie, he he saw what we did with the sharks. He saw what the CGI uh, department, the visual effects artists created, and so going into the second movie, man, it was like he he was he was like doing things because he knew what they were going to put in there. It was mm-hmm. like it was like a whole other level. Like on the first movie, he was a rock star, and this he was he was a golden god. I mean, he just he was. <laughs> He was just like, okay, and then I'm going to take this axe and I'm going to throw it, and then the shark's coming at me, and I'm going to jump on the shark and leap over here. And it was, just, <laughs> it was amazing watching him. And oh, that's great. And, and then you know the other actors saw what he was doing, and so everybody wanted to get in on it. And that's that's what you want. That's what you want. And then so the first movie you had Ian, you had Tara Reid, who mm-hmm. you know that's a big get. You had John Hurd. I mean, come on, John Hurd is not Yeah, no, he was awesome. And you had Cassie Scarbo, who'd been on uh, the Make It or Break It on the, on the Disney uh, ABC family. And then you also had uh, uh, Jason Simmons, who, who was uh, primarily known on, on Baywatch, who was great as Baz. And you see, you had this, you had a, 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 the, the most unlikeliest group of people that came together and felt like a family. They felt like they knew each other. And that's also part of why I think the movie blew up, because these are not people that you normally see in these films. And they weren't people that were just doing it as as oh i'm just i'm just gonna i'm just gonna uh, phone oh, it yeah. in they they just invested themselves no and then you go to two and then uh you know we had all these potential cameos and the the trickiest part about it is a lot of the cameos happen at the last minute so you, we had to we had to literally uh, days notice have to write stuff 
Like I wrote, I wrote some, something one night, like the night before I got a call, this person's in the movie, you got to write something. And, um, for whatever reason, I think Fender wasn't available. So I, I, I got together with a friend of mine and we, uh, over the phone and I said, okay, well, let's hash this out, write up something and I'll, I'll take it afterwards. And so he wrote like between 11 and 1145. I got it. I rewrote it to the scene and then went to sleep at like two and woke up at four, went down to city field and we, and we, I worked with the two actors and we shot it and it, and, and it feels like it's part of the movie. Amazing. And there's, so there's this energy that comes from doing these movies that you have to be fluid. You have to, you have to kind of invent things on the spot to make it work because you well, have you're given a gift you're given suddenly you have Vivica Fox there and and that gave us a story point that it feels so organic to the movie even though it was something that that was was literally kind of crafted uh in in less than a week but and, despite despite the the excitement and enthusiasm and even like coming off of the first film you're still also dealing it sounds like too like you said about writing something the night before you're dealing with having to roll with the limitations of the budget you have and what you have to work with and make the most out of that that you possibly can. And that seems to be part of what comes out of your team also doing yeah. that. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that was, that, that's the kind of the fun part. And I think that, you know, you have a big studio movie, there's a money hose and they have, they have $200 million <laughs> and they just turn it on and they have, they have a hundred days to shoot the movie. And we don't, we have six months to make a film and we have 18 days to shoot it and you, you have to figure out how to do it you and sure. and you have to figure out what you know you have this this scene that is impossible to shoot but what can you do that's just as cool and you have to be constantly uh I, it's uh, i describe directing a sharknado movie is like you come out to set the first ad comes up to you they have a, a shot of and they stick it into your arm <laughs> and then and then you start going ah, and they shove you out there and then it's like go and then you have 12 hours to get a, a whole bunch of stuff. Like there was a day, it was the last day of filming in New York. We shot Liberty, we shot on a boat going to Liberty Island. We shot Liberty Island for two hours. We shot coming back from Liberty Island. We shot coming off of the boat. We shot uh, Wall Street. We shot uh, a bike sequence. We shot uh, Benji uh, from Howard Stern's show getting killed by a shark. We had another cameo person <laughs> that was gonna, that, that ended up getting killed. We had these people running away from something. And then the last shot of the day, we did an effects shot in the, in the middle of the street where someone's face was all mangled. That was a 12-hour day for us. Oh, my God. That was, you're talking company moves and a small crew, a kick-ass New York crew, by the way. And we did it. And, that, and so there's no time... There, there, there's imperfections that come from this because you can't spend, you know, uh, you know, a full day just doing the boat thing. You have to. Sure. But the energy comes from that too. G2V. They're sharks. They're scary. No one wants to get eaten. But I've been eaten, and I'm here to tell you, it takes a lot more than that to bring a good man down. Yeah. A lot more than that to bring a New Yorker down. You know what you just did, don't you? Jump the shark. Sharknado 2, the second one, premieres Wednesday, July 30th at 9. Even the Sharknados are tougher in New York. Only on Sci-Fi. Well, what's yeah. amazing is you, like you were saying, it was six months with the original film, you created something that became a global phenomenon, and now you have something coming up that's 
and this is really not overstating it, I think one of the most anticipated sequels of the year. Imagine if you were handed the money hose for a Hollywood film. <laughs> I think we would see something amazing because you're accomplishing that and you're already delivering something that the entire world is uniting around the idea of Sharknado. It's incredible. The first 12 minutes of this movie, no one is going to believe what we accomplished. And we shot that in a day and a half. It is the most insane thing I've ever tried to to do. And it's almost as if we we the opening of the movie is the end of the movie. And that's a huge ballsy move for us to do because it it's such an ambitious opening and it's so cool in many different ways. Um, and I don't think anybody's going to expect it. You know, I, I, a couple of people have seen it and they keep going, oh, but I kept thinking you were going to do this and you did that. And it's like, it, it really just sets the tone right off the bat. It's just like the boat scene in the first movie, but, you know, on steroids. It's like we just, we go, look, we, we were talking about how people didn't know what side of the fence we were on. Were we, were, were we taking this serious and we didn't know it was, was campy or it was ridiculous? And then they, they got aboard at the end of the movie knowing that we were in on a joke. Well, now that they know that we are trying to make something fun and the, 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 um, the language of the movie is that the, all the characters have to play it straight mm-hmm. except for our comic relief, like a John Hurd or in this case, Judah Friedlander. Um, it gives you the ability to do things that like there's, there's a, there's, there's a line in the movie, uh, uh, where, um, uh, Judd Hirsch, uh, you know, looks at, uh, the Finn. he's, he's, he's driving, he's driving Finn around and he goes, uh, so what is what does it smell like to be in a in, in the belly of a shark or whatever? <laughs> what is the what does it smell like to be inside of a shark? Whatever it was, but it was just like one of those little things. But it's it's dry, it's dry, and 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 in my head, the whole, again, it's like there's there's a, a lot of stuff that I thought about what I wanted to do with Finn, but it's just it's all subtext. There's some of it in there. There's some of it that, just, that was just in my head that only Ian and I and Thunder knew about. Um, but the, the whole notion is that I, I, I feel what happened was is that everybody knows that he was the guy that got swallowed by the shark and lived to tell about it. Everybody knows that. And in the back of my head, there is a meme where there was some like surfer or some kid like smoking pot in an alley and he had like a, a his phone out and he was videotaping, <laughs> he was videotaping this guy, uh, chainsawing his way out of a shark. And, and so, so Finn has to live this down. Uh, it's not, that's not in the movie, but in the back of my head, that's what happened. And it's like, you know, he was famous for being a surfer, but he became infamous. That's very meta because that was, that was the animated GIF file. That was yeah, exactly. Around. Exactly. Right. And then, yeah. and, and then, so the other part of it was that, um, that, uh, he had, it, there, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of what happened uh, the cast and thunder and myself. That's also in the script as well, especially at the beginning of the movie, where we're, we, there is of this meta-ness of us kind of commenting on what happened to us mm-hmm. through Finn and April, that they got caught up into this thing and that people know who they are because of what they did. Sure. And, 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 and I think that, again, that's part of the fun. There's a lot, there's a lot of Easter eggs in the movie for people that care to, to pay attention to it. Now, there's you know? one last piece, though, that we, we haven't touched on, though, and it's another great example of not only how much work you've put into it, but how much goes into the movie and how many different hats people wear, too, is the music of the film. And everybody might remember from the first film, The Ballad of Sharknado. Go, 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 go. Run away from the Sharknado. It's your greatest foe, foe, foe. Don't want to get eaten by Sharknado. 
And why don't you tell a little bit about that song, and then there's going to be some new songs in this, and you're involved directly in that as well. Yeah, um, uh, many, many years ago, uh, it was actually on, on a couple short films of mine. Um, uh, Robbie, Robbie Rist, he's a, he's a good friend of mine. He, he was Cousin Oliver on The Brady Bunch, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he's also this incredible musician. Um, and, uh, he, um, you know, he plays a lot of instruments, he plays in a lot of bands and, um, you know, we, you know, we've been friends for a long, long time. And, um, I had a problem in one of my shorts and he said, uh, you know, some, some band kind of decided they didn't want their song and the movie was finished and we had to swap it out. And he said, just, just come over to the studio. We'll figure something out. And so I played what was in there. He said, okay, well just, we can, there's the, the tempo, the, the tempo and speed. This is, if we do the same speed and we write our own song, this is, we can swap this out. It was like 40 seconds or something. So in, in about two hours we had, uh, recorded, uh, and performed and written the words to this little song called bubble bursting that we put into the short film. And it was, and it, and it was just really quick. You know, he, mm-hmm. he's, he's a genius in that way. And so, uh, on my first movie, boo, uh, we, I found out you couldn't really license songs. I wanted to, I wanted Patsy Cline. I wanted, uh, BB King and all that stuff. And there was no way that we could get that stuff because it cost a lot of money. It would cost sure. more than the movie cost to make. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I was talking to Robbie. He said, "Yeah, just come over. We'll just we'll just write some blues songs. We'll we'll, we'll do this." <laughs> and I found somebody for the Patsy Cline that did, they didn't end up in the movie for various reasons. But we ended up doing like five or six things, and we put them in the film, and and it, it was great because it because you couldn't you can't the stuff that you can license like if you found a blues song, it would sound terrible. It would be library music. And it just would not have any resonance. It would sound very rinky dink most of the time because if you know you have. $25 to pay for a licensing, you get what you get. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but what happened with that too is the, the lyrics and stuff that, that, that we wrote tied into the movie. There was, so it was kind of interesting that it, no one, I don't know if anybody's ever paid attention, but I mean, if you listen to the, the stuff that's percolating in the background, all the, all the, all the lyrics are, are, are kind of like, indirectly relating to the movie there's a the theme of three throughout uh mm-hmm. um boo and and what the blue song one of them was uh one one two three is the name of the thing and it, and it but it sounds like it's just it's about what it is but it's there's more to it the the patsy klein songs had meaning because they were supposed to bookend the movie originally and um and there's there's a lot of stuff going on between our our hero jesse and the songs and and so then on the second movie headless horseman um we we decided we we're going to do this again and i i wanted uh gospel and bluegrass and stuff so so robbie and i created a our fake band for that movie which was the toothless jimmy and the applejack kids and we did <laughs> we we wrote the we wrote these really and there's some blues and gospel and it just weird weird stuff and we you know he knows how to record this stuff so it sounds authentic so some of the stuff sounds like it's like ancient mm-hmm. and it and and again and and actually and and there, so the songs are really prominent in that movie, and they it's it, it again it dry, it's a driving force. It created a palette for what was going on outside of the score, and and it was commenting on things like in Steve Steve Felty's character, you know, there's a thing uh, you can shake, you can moan, but that old black snake is going to make you skin and bones, and that's kind of about his character. Mm-hmm. And 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 then Hansel and Gretel was kind of fifties rock, fifties and sixties rock, and we did a a song called Life is Sweet and some other stuff. And then when it came time to Sharknado, it was like, all right, well, Sharknado's rock and roll. 
you know, we're gonna, uh-huh. we're gonna, you know, we we've been doing all this kind of retro stuff or things that are just off the beaten track. It was kind of like this is our chance to actually do rock and roll. You know, just mm-hmm. you know, let's we're gonna get to make a rock and roll thing. And we were talking about a doing. Uh, I, I, I know I wa- I knew I wanted to do a Sharknado song, and I knew that I wanted it to kind of be. I, we were talking about doing a rock opera. You know, like uh, Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody. We kept calling it Sharknado Rhapsody, and, and so I started writing this thing. I had this uh, this lyric thing, and I kept going in my head that was going to be the beginning of the song, which was uh, "Go, go, 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 run away from the Sharknado. It's your greatest vocal foe. Don't want to get eaten by a Sharknado." Or just something like that. And so I, I took it in and said, "Look, it's it's as if the Ramones were alive. Uh, this is what this would be like. Pet Cemetery. This is what they would write for us." And so Robbie started putting it together, and, and, and we, we got it all together, and the lyrics came really quick. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's another line, uh, by air, by land, by sea, I see that Sharknado coming for me. I can't run, I can't hide, I just don't want to die. I mean, it was just, it was, it's got teeth, it's got speed, destruction is all it needs. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was so fun to write. And once, once, once we kind of put the the music and the lyrics to that, we're like, ah, screw the rock opera. This is too good. Which is, <laughs> it's a ballad of Sharknado. I mean, it, 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 there, there's no point in trying to to do something other than this because it, it just, it worked, and it, and it, and it lended a tone. And a, there's a lot of our songs throughout that movie, and it, and you usually would just have a bunch of score, but the songs kind of also gave it a sense of fun. We wrote a song called "The Weatherman Says." which was in the middle of the film and it was another little fun thing. Um, so coming in and, and, and we did a music video for the Sharknado song and it just kind of, it had its own life. People, they were playing it on sports programs, access Hollywood and E played the music video, like portions of it. It's like, who would have ever figured that would have happened? We were, we're this, we call ourselves Quint and now that that's become our regular <laughs> band name. We would change it every movie. But now that's become our band name, and that sounds perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah, and so so that's what happened with that. It just the songs, uh, the song really, it, it and it fit the film. And so on this one, we had to do a baseball song because there's a city field thing, and actually there's only really two. You think about it, this is the thing that boggles the mind. How name name five of the most popular baseball songs ever? Let's go. All right, take me out to the ball game. It's the first one. Okay, bingo. Okay. What's number two? Oh, good grief. What's number two? I, I can't even... I'm not a sports person, <laughs> so I've now run out of choices. What's number three? What's number four? Okay. <laughs> oh, I see what you're yeah, saying. Exactly. Okay, right. No, 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 no. The second song that everybody knows is Center Field by John Fogarty. Okay, okay sure. Yes, yeah. but, even I know that one. All right. Okay, but after that, uh, I mean, we looked through it. There's, there's no other songs. There's team-specific songs, and there's songs that never got any traction. And, uh, and so I said, I said, well, we gotta, we, we gotta write an ultimate, we gotta write the, the an ultimate baseball song. <laughs> and, and, and so I had this thing, uh, you know, we were talking about it like, well, it's a little too obvious on the nose, but, um, so we went that direction. And so basically, you know, again, we, we talk about these songs, it's like we're writing a musical sometimes. So it's like, so the idea is that it's, uh, it's a guy um, you know, it's it's the end of the season, and all he wants to do is go home to his girl, and he's standing in the box on home plate, and he's thinking, I got, I'm going to hit a home run, and I'm going to come home to you. So it's like, uh, I, I'm one swing away from coming home to you, which has the double meaning of coming home, but also coming home to home plate. And sure. uh, Robbie, uh, we were trying to uh, work on it. Um, 
he came up with this great line. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a champion. I'm tried and I'm true. Um, I'm filled with the glory of old 42, which uh, 42 was the Mets, uh, Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. I'll be paying for a windshield. That's just what I do. I'm one swing away from coming home to you that I'm paying for a windshield. I just like, Robbie, I want to punch you because that's such a good line. <laughs> that's, it was just like, he just, he just, that, 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 that was, and so it, it turned out to be a really fun, um, it's a fun rock song and it's a great little baseball song and I hope people, uh, hope people kind of hear it. Like something that could have a life of its own beyond, you know, the movie. Just something that's perfect on its own. Well, that's that's the whole point too. Sometimes it's yeah. like you write these things that have meaning to the film, but also can like Sharknado yeah. is, is what it is. It, it it's tied to the film because it's it's about a Sharknado. But all the other songs they they may have a meaning to the to the movie, but they also they they also work as individually as a as a pop song or a rock. Now, I like the title of the one that's very New York based. So the, so the New York one, um, actually I had this title when we, when we, when we, right even before we started shooting, I tend, I did this on Headless Horseman too. I, I tend to come up with these long winded titles with parentheses from the, you know, the Jim Steinem meatloaf uh, school of rock songs. <laughs> so like on, on, uh, Headless Horseman, it was, uh, don't lose your head parenthesis. The road to hell is not paved yet. End parenthesis. And then it's like, okay, Ravi, now let's figure out if we can put that to uh, uh, put the lyrics to music. And so on this one, um, I had that uh, the the title. I'm going to take a bite out of this big apple parenthesis before uh, before it takes a bite out of me. End parenthesis. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 and. It actually, it was one of the harder songs to write because, you know, even though, I, and I'm not a New Yorker, so neither is Robbie. So we, you know, it's, I only understand New York from being there. So I knew we had that. I knew we wanted to kind of make it feel like a big band song. We wanted to do our version of New York, New York. You sure. Because there, there's, 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 you know, there's, there's a few New York songs, but again, there's not a lot of them that are, that are really cool. Um, you know, you have New York, New York. That is pretty much the quintessential New York song. Sure. And, um, so we started talking about it and then, um, you know, we, ha- he actually figured out how to make that, turn that into a chorus. And, uh, um, we started coming up with some lines and it just, it wasn't working. And so he had a friend, Tony Leventhal, and he's, uh, he's, uh, Bobby's in a band with him called the Mockers. And so we sent it to Tony cause he's from New York. And, and so Tony started working on a, on a couple things and he came back with some stuff, but he took it in a dark direction. But, there, okay. there, but he gave us all all the scraps too, and there was there were some really beautiful lines in there, and um, so then then we then we started working on it some more, 
um, utilizing some of the stuff he had uh, he had come up with, and and we ended up writing this really happy popcorn song. I just you listen to it, and it's it's just it, it's positive and it's corny, and it takes every cliche you could imagine. Um, there was a there was this there was this bridge that we were struggling with, um, um, where uh, it was like uh, uh, Rockefeller Center. It's like I never met you. Blah 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 blah, and we could never come up with it. And so Robbie was working on some some guitars, and I'm like, I was I was listening to the song, trying to figure it up, figure out what to do there. And it was like, I got it, I got it. And it was like uh, Rockefeller Center. It's like I never met you. Never won four goodbyes. Apple of my eye, all American pie. Oh wow! <laughs> and it was just like it's it's again it's corny, but it worked. all the icons, sure. Yep. And then um, we wanted to do big band, but we didn't. We don't have access to that instrumentation, so we started talking about it and going, "What if it started off slow, and then it becomes like John, Johnny Rotten doing my way? It becomes this rock song, you know. It sort of becomes, but it's kind of it's still in that kind of big band feel, mm-hmm. and and it just. It, it it really became our favorite as as it came together at once once we got through the writing of the song and and all the ingredients and Tony's amazing contributions with uh you know helping us get over the hump of of the New York stuff cuz he his he, uh, he put a reference to to Frank Sinatra in there and it's just like there's some great stuff and it just it just it's 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 candy it's just popcorn you listen to it and you go i i can't hate this <laughs> i won't give it People listening to this episode too will have, will have been hearing bits of all these songs that we're talking about, and thanks to you also for providing them for this episode. So oh, they will have been hearing they will be hearing pieces of this throughout as we've been talking too. Yeah, so as I said, it, that's it's the fun part. It's the music has always been the fun part because there's nobody telling us we can't do that, and you know whether they get chosen for the movie or not chosen for the movie, it's um, it's just part of the fun. It, mm-hmm. it really allows us to, um, you know, it allows us to just, you know, go, okay, let's, let's do some rock and roll. And I, I, Robbie, Robbie should be the most highly paid music supervisor <laughs> musician on the, on the planet. Because when you realize that most of those songs are just two people, 
and, and and it's all done at his little studio. I mean, it's just it blows your mind. I mean, he's he's amazing. I mean, he's playing drums and bass and guitar and a lot of this stuff. You know, I'm I'm off trying to edit the movie, and you know, he's 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 slaving away coming up with this this just amazing stuff. Now, Sharknado Two will be debuting, and I I doubt that it's going to be anything less than another event for a lot of people nationwide and globally, if only because of what happened with the first film. And I know that as we've been talking about through a lot of this episode, you and everyone else have been on this ride of seeing what Sharknado became. We'll see what happens with the sequel, obviously. And what are you thinking? What are you looking forward to as this one debuts? And what what might uh, lay ahead for the Sharknado franchise? I think the cool thing is, is that you know, look, I, I don't like jinxing these things, but um, you know, there's there seems to be a lot of awareness and a lot of a lot of people wanting to see this movie, and you know, I hope people, uh, I hope people check it out. I mean, we it feels like we haven't stopped making the the original Sharknado, um, because you know, most of these movies take most most big studio movie sequels take two years to get off the ground, and mm-hmm. we literally are making a movie a year later, so there's a lot of that same energy and. Uh, I think you know that's that's the cool part. I think that there's a consistency. You have the same cast, the same writers, the same uh, directors, same producers, and you know we all have a common goal of trying to uh, please this ravenous audience that that just wants to have fun and and and, and get sucked into a Sharknado. And I know they've <laughs> I, I know they've they've announced a third one, and uh, you know no one no one's been hired yet for it. I mean, it's just uh, they they know they want to do it, and we'll see see where that leads. I think. I think after this movie, we'll know what people like, and we'll see uh, we'll see where 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 the next movie could go, and and hopefully uh, everybody uh, is back and involved because uh, you know it'd be be nice to see a, a a cool trilogy come out of this where you can kind of kind of wrap everything up in a bow, but also set the stage for for future movies. The Sharknado saga. Well, we're we're going to be watching. We'll probably be online at the same time. We'll see what's happening on Twitter and everywhere else, and everybody listening. We certainly expect there'll be a lot of people here who are really interested in hearing what you had to say about the movie, and we'll also be uh, watching it when it debuts on the Sci-Fi Channel on July 30th. That's Wednesday, July 30th, and uh, there's a whole week of programming planned all around the debut of Sharknado 2, and we'll see what happens when that airs. But we also wanted to thank you very much for being on the show and for uh, sharing all the stories about both films and everything else. Thanks, Anthony. Oh, you're very welcome. It was fun. It was great, uh, great chatting. You know, I mean, this is, it's, it's so bizarre because I mean, we would always just have these random conversations. You know, that's <laughs> no. why we got, that's why we got, uh, uh, yeah, this wasn't a, a phone call about, oh, here's an article you got to write and can you do it by next week? No, no problem. So yeah. this was a little different. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty awesome. So, um, you know, I'm glad, like, so, look at, you know, all that you, all that you hope for as a, as a filmmaker or a budding filmmaker, as people see your movies and everybody goes, hey, but everybody was making fun of it or doing this. It's like, you know what? People are talking about the movie. You know, people yeah. rip into Michael Bay's Transformer and they're people that love it. You know, if people are watching your movies, I, you know, it's fine. They can, they can take whatever they want from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you, like at Comic-Con last year, you know, you had like 10-year-old kids coming up wanting us you to sign a poster. You know, that just, it's, it's cool. And there was this woman, uh, she's probably in her 50s, she came up to me and she goes, thank you for making Sharknado. I've watched <laughs> it five times. It made me happy. Like, that wasn't, oh, that wasn't someone that hated the movie. She just, she just had a blast and we did something that made her happy. And that, that's the kind of... 
that's the whole point of doing this stuff. And so, you know, if the means I get to make more movies, that that's great because, you know, I love making movies. That sums it up. That's wonderful. Thanks again. Right. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. Thank you, guys. And thanks for listening to the G2V Podcast. Visit our website at g2vpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at G2V Podcast. Join our Facebook page and subscribe to us on iTunes. And please be sure to rate and review us while you're there. <laughs>